Sheikha Latifa bint Muhammad al Maktoum imagined a better life for herself. If I don't make it out alive, at least there's a video. I really hope I don't need this video. It was 2018. Latifa was in Dubai plotting her flight to freedom. Pretty soon, I'm going to be leaving somehow. And I'm not so sure of the outcome, but I'm 99% positive it will work. She would soon head out onto the Arabian Sea to escape her father. I don't know how, how I'll feel just waking up in the morning and thinking, I can do whatever I want today. I can go wherever I want. I have all the choices in the world like anyone does. That'll be such a new, different feeling. That'll be amazing. Latifa is the daughter of the ruler of the United Arab Emirates, and she's not the only one of his daughters to run away. Their story is the focus of a new podcast from The New Yorker and In the Dark. Heidi Blake is an investigative journalist at The New Yorker, co-host of this podcast, The Runaway Princesses. Heidi, hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is an incredible story. Um, Who is Sheikha Latifa's father? So Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum is the Prime Minister of the UAE and, and the absolute ruler of Dubai. And he's also one of the world's richest and, and most powerful individuals. He ha- owns a huge global property portfolio. He's the owner of the world's largest thoroughbred horse racing team. And he's a real a key strategic ally to Western governments, including the governments of the US and the United Kingdom. How is he viewed by the West. I mean, he's an interesting character in part because of the image that he tries to project abroad. Yeah, that's right. He's he's a fascinating character because at home in the UAE, he works hard to cultivate the image of a traditional Arab leader. But then on the global stage, he's also managed to position himself as something of a progressive, um, and in particular, as a champion of women's rights, which is one of the things that I found most interesting as I went about investigating the way he treats his own daughters and the women in his family. What do we know about that? And what was your entry point into the story? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'd followed snippets of the story of Latifa's incredible, incredibly daring attempt to escape her father. You know, soon after she made her attempted escape in 2018, news broke that she had been captured on the Arabian Sea, uh, and then subsequently that she was being held prisoner um, by her father in Dubai. And so I'd, I'd followed those developments, but there was a lot of mystery around what had happened to Latifa subsequently, because she began to appear uh, in a number of what appeared to be carefully staged manners social media posts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then statements were released in her name suggesting that she was living freely in Dubai. And that seemed to be so at odds with some of the earlier pronouncements in videos that she'd left behind before her escape, some of which you just heard there, that I wanted to know what had really happened to her after she was captured by her father's men. Um, and was she really free or was there another story here? And I mean, part of this is that it's not only her. There's also, as I mentioned, she's not the only one of this family that has tried to escape. Let's start with her sister. She was really close to her older sister. Tell us about her. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things I was able to do as I went about reporting this story was to get hold of an extraordinary trove of letters and and messages um, sent by both Shamsa and Latifa, uh, mostly by Latifa, but some also by Shamsa, which documented their childhood and adolescence in really amazing detail. Um, And I learned from that that 
Latifa had been taken away from her natural mother in her infancy and given as a gift to Sheikh Mohammed's childless sister. And she had lived with, with her aunt, believing it to be her mother, for 10 years in really awful conditions. Actually, she was treated appallingly um, during that time. Um, but she hadn't known during that whole period that she was a princess um, or that she had a sister, Shamsa. And it was only when she was 10 that she discovered uh, the truth about who her mother was. Um, and it was actually Shamsa who went and fought for Latifa to be allowed to return to live with her and their mother. And after that, Latifa just adored her sister, who was four years older. And, and she wrote that she saw her as a, a mother figure and a best friend. And she was kind of enchanted by Shamsa. Because in this culture where women live in really repressive circumstances, Shamsa was, Latifa described, you know, described her as a, a live wire and a free spirit, mm. um, but also a compassionate person. Um, and she was, she was a free spirit and she was rebellious. And so she herself had decided to run away uh, when they were teenagers. Does that explain why she wanted to run away? Because you could imagine people on the outside and not knowing all the details, saying that these are people who were born into extraordinary wealth and privilege and they have everything that you could possibly imagine. Why would they want to escape? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's certainly the perception. And, and of course, life inside those palaces is extraordinarily opulent in lots of ways. But it's also a sort of golden cage, I think, for, for many of these women. And Latifa wrote very movingly about life in her aunt's palace and, you know, th this extraordinarily grand setting, but how she was kept confined to her room. She was barely allowed to go outside or to, or to play or to explore. Um, she wrote about how she would just spend hours and hours at the window dreaming of freedom, um, but how occasionally she'd be taken out of her room and made to pose for photographs when you know she for, for those occasions she'd be dressed up in, in fine clothes and given toys to play with and pets and everything was made to look um as though she was having this sort of idyllic childhood but then as soon as the photographers went all of that would be taken away and, and she'd be sent back to her room and, and there were also stories of real physical abuse so the tifa writes about being beaten until her body was covered with welts by her aunt. Um, and she also describes occasion an occasion when Sheikh Mohammed himself repeatedly punched Shamsa in the head mm. during a, an argument over her education. Um, and so you know, there, there, there's this kind of strange mixture of op opulence and extreme brutality um, that is the sort of context for these women. But it's also clear that as they, as they matured towards womanhood and became increasingly independent and interested in study and travel and sort of developing identities of their own that Shamsa and you know, Latifa were, uh, was sort of, you know, that it was made clear to them that they, these were not options for them, that they, they couldn't drive, they couldn't travel, they couldn't study, they were expected to cover themselves with the abaya, um, and that freedom of that sort wasn't an option for them. And it was at that point that Shamsa decided to run away. What happened when she tried to escape? So Shamsa was was around 18 when she decided to run. Latifa was just 14 at the time. Um, and she asked Latifa to go with her, but Latifa was sort of too frightened. Um, and so Shamsa waited until the family traveled to England to Sheikh Mohammed's summer house in Surrey for a, a holiday. And she went with she went with the entourage and she waited uh, till one night when uh, she was able to slip out of Sheikh Mohammed's mansion and she found a Range Rover that had been left unattended outside and jumped in and despite never having been allowed to learn to drive, managed to veer off into the night, um, drove the, the Range Rover to the perimeter of the estate, which is a huge sprawling estate of, of hundreds and hundreds of acres. Um, then she ditched the vehicle and she slipped out through a gate and just disappeared into the night. 
Um, and it was actually weeks before she was tracked down. She managed to spend a considerable amount of time on the run and actually to find a lawyer and tell him her story. What happened when she goes to officials to say she's trying to escape, that she's looking for asylum, essentially, to try to get out of the country? And so she she found this lawyer who was just a kind of small-time immigration lawyer and, and walked into his office unannounced and said, hi, I'm a, I'm a runaway princess from the royal family of Dubai. Um, so quite an extraordinary walk-in for this, uh, this kind of unassuming lo- local lawyer. Um, but he was just completely out of his depth. He didn't know what to do. Um, uh, you know, among other things, she didn't have a passport. That was being held by her family back at her father's estate. Um, and he kind of told her there was very little hope of getting her any help from the British government, particularly in light of the friendly relations between the UK and the UAE. And so Shamsa was just all on her own, on the run, without any sort of resources or help. She'd never been out alone before, let alone lived alone, you know, on on the streets of the UK. Um, And so she became increasingly desperate. And then that's when she made a pretty crucial error. Which was? So she reached out to one of her father's guards, which seems like a kind of unbelievably naive thing to do. But this was a guy she'd grown really close to and she had a kind of soft spot for a man mm. called George Osborne, uh, Grant Osborne, apologies, not George Osborne, um, Grant Osborne. And so she she reached out to him uh, and asked him to help her. And he agreed to meet her at a hotel in Cambridge. Um, and and they, they met there. It appears they spent some time drinking together. Um, and then what Osborne actually did rather than helping her was he lured her into an ambush on a nearby bridge and Shamsa was captured by four Emirati guards sent by her father, um, dragged back to his mansion and then taken out of the country by helicopter the following day and returned to Dubai against her will. And the suggestion was that she was drugged and then imprisoned, right? That's right. So amazingly, Shamsa was able, while being kidnapped, to get hold of a phone and contact the lawyer who she'd met while she was on the run. And she left behind this account of what had happened to her, where she described being being forcibly sedated, uh, dragged back to the palace, and then ultimately imprisoned. Um, now, she actually managed to get a report not only to the lawyer, but to the police during uh, the kidnap. They decided not to do anything when they when they understood who exactly she was. And then six months after she had been uh, held prisoner, she managed again to make contact with the outside world, this time by persuading a maid who was attending to her in prison to smuggle a note out um, in hidden in her hair um, to as lawyer in which again she she called upon him to involve the British authorities and to investigate her kidnap and forcible imprisonment. Um, why why, why were the authorities when, not doing anything? You said that they kind of backed off in part because of of who she was and and and, and what the family was. What were they worried about? Well, I mean, that's the kind of burning question, I think, at the heart of all of this. Um, and, you know, you see time and time again when, when Shamza managed to get word to the police that she needed help, decisions were taken just to effectively ignore it. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reporting this out and talking to officials about this. And, and the answer I got time and time again was that Sheikh Mohammed is an extremely important ally to the United Kingdom. He's also uh, Britain's biggest private landowner and, importantly, um, is a huge figure in British horse racing and through that role had earned a valuable friendship with uh, the Queen of England. He he, Um, he, he used to watch the horse races with the Queen, right? 
That's right. Yeah, he was he was a regular guest in the royal box at Ascot. He even travelled with the Queen to the the tournament in at the head of the royal procession. They were genuinely very close friends for several decades. Um, and at one point, a police officer told me that when he'd been told to to stand down from investigating another alleged crime by Sheikh Mohammed in the UK, that he'd been effectively told by the government leave this alone and Her Majesty's favourite sport will continue in this country. Um, and, you know, the implication being he would pull the plug um, if he was challenged. Uh, another police officer said to me, if you're a rich and powerful enough person, you can effectively break any law you like in our country and get away with it. And that really seemed to be at the heart of what was happening here. In the wake of her sister's attempt to flee and then being returned back, Latifa tries to escape in 2002. She was unsuccessful in that, but she was put back in prison in the UA, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so when Latifa saw her sister dragged back to Dubai, drugged and imprisoned, she was devastated. Um, and when it became clear that, you know, despite their repeated efforts to get the message to the police that no help was coming and the authorities were not going to get involved, Latifa, aged 16, decided to take matters into her own hands. And so she snuck out at night again, the first time she'd ever been out alone and managed to sneak over the border um, into Oman, crossing, crossing over a desert desert border point before she was intercepted again by her father's men, dragged home um, and thrown into a, a, a desert bound prison where she described in excruciating detail yeah. being horrifically tortured. Um, she was at one point beaten so badly that all the bones in her feet were broken yeah. and she was just described being kept in a filthy dark cell where the, all the lights were kept off for days at a time and sleeping on a, a blood-stained mattress um having to drag herself across the room to drink from a tap by the toilet because her feet were broken um and she was kept there for three and a half years before she was finally released she decides in the wake of that that she wants to flee again and she meets somebody who who she thinks is going to help her tell us about about this friend of hers tina yeah, Tina is a really extraordinary character in all of this. And so she's someone Latifa met after, after some years had passed. So after, after Latifa's first failed escape attempt, she really decided to bide her time. And she wrote extensively to friends that she, she refused to repeat the mistakes that she and Shamza had made before, that this time around she would think of everything, that she would consider everything that could possibly go awry in an escape attempt and she would make all possible preparations to avoid it. And so one of the things that she started to do as she prepared for this escape over seven years was that she recruited a martial arts instructor to help train her. Um, and that martial arts instructor was this extraordinary woman called Tina Yauhainen. Um, and so she began teaching Latifa Kapuera at the palace. Um, and then gradually over time, they became friends um, and they started uh, skydiving together. And Latifa also became a very accomplished scuba diver, all part of her efforts to prepare herself for this planned escape. And eventually she took Tina into her confidence. Um, so Latifa had been living under constant chaperone mm. this whole time. But because she had spent so much time with Tina over seven years as they trained together, Tina had actually come to be seen as a sort of unofficial chaperone in her own right by the palace. And so Latifa and Tina allowed to be, allowed to, were allowed to spend time together, just the two of them. And when that was started to happen, Latifa was able to tell her what had happened to Shamza, what had happened to Latifa herself when she'd previously tried to escape um, and confided in her that she was planning to try and run away again. And this time, Tina told her that she'd be with her all the way, that she was going to try and help Latifa make it all the way to freedom. And so they cook up this plan 
to escape via boat, which does not go particularly well. They're out at sea for one day, and then the boat is boarded by men with guns. Um, I want to play a little bit of the scene from the podcast. This is from Tina's account. Have a listen. And they were threatening to shoot me and like kind of like close your eyes or we shoot you. She says someone told her to take her last breath. And I was thinking, yeah, that's it. This is the way my life is ending. She says Latifa was yelling at the men to leave her friend alone. The commandos were yelling, who is Latifa? Someone grabbed Latifa by the hair and yanked her head up. He showed her to someone else and said, is this her? Latifa shouted over and over that she wanted asylum, but the men didn't listen. Then she was, she was taken away, kicking and screaming. Latifa fought and fought. She was kicking and hitting and clinging to the gunnels. And she yelled out, don't take me back, just kill me now. And then Tina watched as they dragged her friend over the side of the boat. And Latifa was gone. What happened to Latifa after that? Well, for a whole year, Tina and her other supporters had absolutely no idea what had happened to Latifa, and they were campaigning vociferously um, for her, you know, release and trying to trying to do everything they could to lobby the UN uh, to intervene and to publicise the fact that she'd been captured. Um, but only after a year had passed, Tina finally received a cryptic message over Facebook from somebody who Latifa had enlisted to help her. And it was another maid. So it was somebody who was working uh, where Latifa was being held, who Latifa had persuaded to smuggle a letter mm. out to, and to find Tina and to send it to her. And so Latifa received this handwritten note from Latifa and, and it described how after she was taken from the boat, she'd been forcibly, again, injected with tranquilizers, um, dragged onto a military helicopter and then onto a private jet and taken back to Dubai, where she was thrown into a desert prison. Um, And she was held there for several days before her friends went ahead and released this video that Latifa had recorded in advance of the escape with instructions to release it if anything went wrong. And that was a sort of turning point because although she was treated very harshly at first, once that video had been released and then suddenly the world was watching and there were a lot of questions being asked about what had happened to this runaway princess, her guards started to be more emollient and she described how they started to serve her food on gold-lined plates and, and basically plead with her to recant this testimony and to to go out publicly and say that she took it all back and she didn't mean what she'd said about her father um, and basically to participate in propaganda um, to try to dispel international concerns about her capture. And so she was in prison for several years and the the records we have in these these amazing letters and journals and audio recordings and, and video logs that she made during her imprisonment document this this indomitable spirit of hers, this absolute refusal to crumble and to give in to these efforts to to co-opt her into uh, into releasing propaganda. Um, and she really says that she will not allow decades of dehumanization and abuse that she's suffered to be erased by her father and his men and that she wants the world to know what she suffered um, and that she wants to inspire other women in the Gulf to stand up for their rights. Um, what, 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 is just, her fa- what, is, what does her father say about this? What, is, what does Sheikh Mohammed say about this? Not just when it comes to Latifa, but her sister as well. So Sheikh Mohammed has has consistently denied uh, capturing or imprisoning either of his daughters, even after actually a, a British court ruled that he in fact had done those things. Um, 
that's a whole separate strand of the story that arose after another princess ran away from him and, and brought a court action against him in the UK. Um, but he he's steadfastly denied it. He says he considers Latifa's return to Dubai a rescue mission, uh, and the same with Shamza. Um, and that you know he he's portrayed his daughters as being mentally ill, wayward, and needing the care of their family, um, and has sort of has has yeah consistently presented Latifa as 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 being a vulnerable young woman who is uh, you know needs to be sort of kept under tight control. Just in the last few minutes that we have, I mean, the, the podcast lays all of this out in extraordinary detail, as does your writing for The New Yorker. But one of the things that this speaks to is something that you mentioned earlier, which was um, what happened when officials, whether it was officials in the UK or you talk about the United Nations as well in your reporting, um, learn about these allegations. What does her story tell you about, about wealth and power and, and how they intersect in the world right now? Well, it's just amazing to see the willingness of officials from, you know, from the international community to just to just look away time and time again. And also not not only to look away, not only to decline to intervene to actually help these princesses, but actually to to sort of collude with Sheikh Mohammed's presentation of himself as a, as a champion of women's rights in the region. You know, that's a sort of convenient fig leaf that allows world leaders to continue to engage with him um, and, you know, to continue to be on the receiving end of the tens of billions of dollars that the UAE pours into the economies of, for example, the US and the UK. Um, and, you know, to be, to, to enjoy the, the, the fruits of that diplomatic relationship. Um, and it's incredibly frustrating in, in, you know, examining this case just to see the many occasions when powerful world leaders refuse to help. And then at the same time, these amazing acts of courage mm. by relatively powerless people, you know, these maids who risked everything to help these princesses, people like Tina, you know, who who risked her life to help Latifa. And, and you know, it's, it's almost as though these individuals have to step in to try to help where global governments have singularly failed to intervene uh, on behalf of these, these women. Um, and so it's kind of a, on the one hand, an incredibly frustrating story. And then on the other hand, you know, there are some, some reasons to be hopeful about the human condition as well. We're out of time, but do you know just finally how free Latifa is today? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a huge question in all of this. And, you know, my my conclusion is that you can see in the in the letters and the, the messages that we have that over time in prison, her willpower did eventually begin to crumble. It was just too much. And I think she has had to accept that she's never going to have the freedom that she wanted, but that she can, by cooperating, have something closer to it, at least than being held in prison by her father. Um, and, and I think that's a that's that's a, a tragic outcome because it's it, you know she she insisted again and again that for her it was liberty or death there was nothing in between and she's very much living in between it is an incredible story to read but to hear her voice and to hear the sounds of those videos uh, and some of the people who are willing to speak up is quite something heidi thank you very much for this Thank you so much for having me. Heidi Blake is an investigative journalist at The New Yorker and co-host of a new podcast from In the Dark and The New Yorker. It's called The Runaway Princesses. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts.